1 Corinthians chapter 1. We left off last week uh, at the end of verse 17. We'll pick up in verse 18 and we'll go through the end of the chapter this morning. In the beginning of this epistle, the epistle of Paul to the church at Corinth, Paul thanked God that these believers, that these men and women in the church were, as he put it, enriched by Him, that being God, in all utterance and all knowledge. We talked about that last week, that this was a very intellectual church, that this was a very knowledgeable church. And as we talked about that, we must understand that this is the context within which Paul is saying what he's going to say in verses 18-31. through This church, as we learned last week, is filled with the carnality of division. We talked about this carnality last week. We talked about the possibility two weeks ago of a Christian being carnal, being fleshly, being driven by his flesh and not by the Spirit. Last week we looked at this first symptom, that being extreme division in the church. We'll see as we continue in the book that these lines of division, at least in part, have been drawn along the lines of spiritual gifts. If I can paint the picture with you this way, if you were to look at the church of Corinth and you were to see these factions that had divided, we talked about these dividing lines. Some are saying, I'm of Paul. Some are saying, I'm of of Paulus. Some are saying, I'm of Cephas. And others saying, I'm of Christ. Well, the dividing lines, as we'll look further into the book, have been divided along the lines of spiritual gifts. There were some in the church that had what we would call Um, charismatic spiritual gifts in in this age. I'm not talking about the charismatic movement that we see today. I'm talking about those gifts that were defined as sign gifts. Things like miracles, like healing, like tongues. And there were others in the church that did not have these gifts. The ability to exercise these sign gifts. They had gifts from God, perhaps prophecy, perhaps of mercy, perhaps of giving, perhaps these other things, but not necessarily these sign gifts. And as I mentioned, this church was also very intellectual, probably heavily influenced by the Corinthian history of philosophy, the philosophers such as Plato and Aristotle, those that came out of the Greek golden age. These believers had an intellectual faith, which in and of itself is not necessarily a problem, but can become a problem when the intellect is drawn to the wisdom of the world rather than to the wisdom of the world. Of God. Their faith had a form, but it wasn't producing the fruit of righteousness. Their faith was not bringing about those elements of the fruit of the Spirit that we read about in Galatians chapter 5. And that because their faith was rooted in intellectualism, and that intellectualism had begun to drift toward the way of the world, toward philosophy and these Greek philosophers instead of toward the Word of God. And you know, as we think about this Christian faith that we live and that we study and that we hear about and that we read in our Scriptures. There is much about the Word of God that stimulates the intellect, isn't there? The depths of God's Word are unsearchable. And as we think about the many that are out there studying the Word of God, we recognize that there are many unbelievers that devote their lives even to studying the Word of God because there is a great intellectual reward in studying a book of such historical magnitude. But you know, one of those logical stimulants is not the cross. The cross is not something 
that stimulates the intellect. The cross is not only offensive to human sensibilities, it is foolish to human sensibilities. Many elements of the Christian faith make sense, if you will, from a human level. Many elements of the Christian faith are things that anybody and everybody likes, can agree with, they see it, it makes sense to them. The existence of a higher power makes sense to the heart of man. Even those that call themselves atheists, there comes a point where every man in their heart recognizes that there is a God. The old adage goes, there's no atheists in foxholes. When a person is confronted with the end of their life, they recognize that there is a God. All around the world, there are people who have rejected the cross of Jesus Christ. There are people who have rejected the biblical God. There are people that have rejected the deity of Jesus Christ Himself who still believe that there is God. They worship Buddha. They worship their ancestors. They worship some transcendental idea of nature being God. Whatever it is, but they believe that there's a higher being. This concept of there being a higher being is not offensive to human nature. The existence of absolute truth and absolute morality, they make sense in the heart of man. Now, we live in a postmodernistic society that says there is no absolute truth. They're opposing themselves on every front. However, the majority of the world still believes in absolute truth. You don't have to believe in the God of the Bible. You don't have to understand the cross of Jesus Christ to recognize that there is absolute right and wrong, to recognize that there is such thing as absolute morality. The uniformity of nature demands that there be a creator, and there are many unbelievers who see this. There are many people that say, well, even though I don't believe in the, in the biblical God, I don't believe in Jesus Christ, I don't believe in the cross, it's very clear that this world has been designed. There must be an intelligent designer. And so perhaps they'll look towards some God that we don't know about, or perhaps they'll look towards many of the pantheon of gods, or they may even say it's aliens that created us. But they they recognize that there's a creator. There are things taught in the Word of God that are intellectually stimulating and make sense to the heart of man. We have to understand that. There are many unbelievers who still recognize these higher powers, but you know, salvation is not about recognizing a higher power. Salvation is only found by those who accept the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. There are plenty of unbelievers who see the societal necessity of morality. They say, you know, I don't believe in God, but morals are pretty important because if we didn't have morality, then society would fall apart. They see that. But salvation has nothing to do with living a moral life. Salvation is only found by those who accept the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. There is many an unsaved man who sees the great benefits of taking their kids to church and introducing them to religion. But there will not be one man or woman in heaven because they went to church or because they practiced religion. Salvation is only found by those who accept the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And as you think about that, it sounds so easy, doesn't it? It seems so simple, and you know it is. Paul spoke of the simplicity of the gospel in his writings. Well, then what's the problem? If there's so many elements that the Bible teaches that make sense to man, and really, the gospel is so simple, salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone, the cross of Jesus Christ, then what's the problem? Why are there so many people out there that reject salvation, that reject the Word of God? Well, the problem is the cross. 
See, the cross doesn't make sense. The cross indicates the death of an innocent man for, for the guilty. That doesn't make sense. The cross indicates a sacrifice of a holy, perfect God for sinful man. That doesn't make sense. The cross shows the necessity of grace and forgiveness. The cross shows us the importance and the necessity of humility before God. These things, these things are foolishness to the heart of man. From a per- purely human perspective, we can understand having to earn our salvation. Earning our salvation makes sense, doesn't it? From a purely human perspective, it is reasonable that we would have to work off a debt to get to God. We'd have to be a good person. We'd have to do personal sacrifices. We'd have to suffer in some way. This makes sense. Because if we were God, that's what we would do. Because if I were God and someone did me wrong, it would not be enough for me simply to love them so much that I would send someone innocent to pay their debt for them. I'd want them to pay. I was talking to a man a while ago and we got into a discussion about firearms and um, about protecting our homes and these sorts of things and he was mentioning that he would have a very hard time if someone hurt his family in moving on in his life until he got revenge. He would have a hard time not dedicating his life to hunting them down or spending his entire life making sure that they got justice. See, that's what's in the heart of a man. We, that, that's our concept of justice. That's what we want. And so it is so difficult for us to understand a God who would love us enough that He would send His only begotten Son to die on the cross for our sins, to pay a penalty that we could not pay, and then therefore to re- ask us to humble ourselves before God and to accept this gift for salvation. That's the offense of the cross. And if it were as simple as working our way to heaven, some of us may not be able to do it, but that would, that would be okay to us. That would make sense. But the cross, the cross is foolishness to the heart of man. And it is within this context that Paul speaks in verses 18-31 through 31 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He's comparing that which is reasonable to a man with that which is foolish to a man. And he uses the idea of that which is reasonable to the man, he uses the idea of worldly wisdom. He speaks of it as worldly wisdom. Of that which is man's wisdom. And that which is foolish to a man, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the cross of Jesus Christ, he references it as God's wisdom. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning in these verses. Three lessons that remind us of the importance and the power of the cross of Jesus Christ. Three lessons for us that remind us both of the importance of the cross of Jesus Christ and the power of Jesus Christ. And as we do so, what we're going to see is God using the cross. That which is foolish in the heart of a man for a very particular reason. Let's look at it together. The first lesson this morning found in verses 18-21, through 21, the cross, cross excuse me, abolishes worldly wisdom. What does the cross do? What is its power? What is its efficacy? Why is it important? Well, first off, it abolishes, it destroys, it makes null worldly wisdom. Look with me in verse 18. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. That's how Paul begins, that the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. It's important as we begin Uh, to note 
this word preaching, the preaching of the cross. We see the word preaching found throughout this passage, but when we see it here in verse 18, it's a different word than we're going to look at in other places. In verse 21, the word that's used for preaching is the word that we would expect. It's the word kerugma. It's the word that means to declare, to proclaim, to herald. It's the word for what I'm doing right now. I am preaching to you the cross. I am heralding the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's that word in verse 21. But here in verse 18, it's a different word. Perhaps you're familiar with the word if you've ever done any Bible study. It's the word logos. It's the word that simply means word. The spoken word. But it's more than that. In John 1 verse 1, the Bible tells us, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. It's speaking of Jesus Christ there and it's calling Jesus Christ the Word. The very communication of God to man. The Word of God to man. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word that's used there is Logos. So when Paul is speaking here about the preaching of the cross, he's not simply speaking of the words that come out of my lips to you on any given Sunday. He's speaking of the declaration of what happened on the cross. He is speaking of the ministry, the life, the ministry, the message of the cross, and the message of Jesus Christ. The word of the cross, the preaching of the cross, and it's to them that perish foolishness. Here, Paul is drawing a, a distinct line. Now, throughout the book of of. First Corinthians, we're seeing lines drawn. There's division in the church. Paul's drawing, lo- drawing lines between those who are in the church as carnal and those who are in the church as spiritual. Well, here there's a very different line drawn. Paul is drawing a line between them that perish and them which are saved. He's drawing a line along the, the degrees of salvation or, or um, unbelief. Belief or unbelief in Jesus Christ unto salvation. And so he speaks of them that perish. This Greek word meaning that which is destroyed, killed, lost, dead. The form that it's in is in the present tense in the Greek, implying that they are currently in a state of perishing. That if they have not accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior, if they have not accepted the cross of Christ, then they are on their way to eternal destruction. And he contrasts that with this phrase, us which are saved. This being a very typical word, the typical word for salvation in the Greek, also in the present tense. That those who are saved are currently saved from sin. Are on the path, not toward destruction as those who are perishing, but are on the path toward eternal life. And this is the line that he's drawing as Paul is speaking of the cross. We must understand this contrast. We must understand this distinction. Paul is no longer speaking simply of those in the church who are spiritual and those who are carnal. He is speaking in these verses of those who are unbelievers and those who are believers. As Paul teaches this reality, he makes note of the fact that this division between belief and unbelief was prophesied of in the Old Testament. Notice verse 19. Paul says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Whenever you see those words in your New Testament, for it is written, look for a cross-reference to an Old Testament passage. Those are, that's a key word in your Bible study that says he's quoting something from the Old Testament. He may be quoting it verbatim, he may be summarizing it, but he is stating a concept found in the Old Testament. So you want to look for a cross-reference. If you have a study Bible... 
then those cross-references will be provided for you. If you do not have a study Bible, you'll need to do a little bit of digging. And you know what? That's okay. But look for that cross-reference and don't overlook it. Go find it. Because particularly in these doctrinal books, those cross-references are going to help us. There's one I was studying this past week in 1 Corinthians 14. When we get there, a cross-reference will make or break our interpretation of a passage of Scripture and our interpretation of an entire doctrine. So we'll, we'll uh, need to take good care to look at those cross-references when we see this term, it is written. And the passage that Paul is referencing here is Isaiah 29, verse 14. Let me read it for you. Therefore, behold, I will proceed, God speaking here, to do a marvelous work among this people, even a marvelous work and a wonder. For the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hid. And that was a prophecy of exactly what we're seeing in the New Testament surrounding the cross of Jesus Christ. That all of the wisdom of the wise men will pass away, and all of the understanding of those men that are prudent shall be hid. And it focuses in on the reality of the cross. I draw your attention to another Old Testament passage, one not quoted here, but in Jeremiah 8 verse 9, Jeremiah writes this, The wise men are ashamed. They are dismayed and taken. Lo, they have rejected the word of the Lord. And what wisdom is in them? Jeremiah says to the man that would reject the word of the Lord, it doesn't matter how much wisdom he thinks he has, there's no wisdom in the man who has rejected the word of the Lord. Well, what is the word of the Lord? We see in verse 18, for the preaching, the word, the logos of the cross. The word of the Lord is the cross. If you want to find out what the word of the Lord is, it's the cross. And it's to them that perish foolishness. So Paul asks a question in verse 20. Numerous questions, in fact. He says, where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? And notice how he answers his own question in verse 21. For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Again, we see an important interpretive help here. We see this for. And that connects what we saw before in verse 20 with what he's saying here in verse 21. And so he asks a bunch of questions. Where's the wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? And he says, for an explanation after that in the wisdom of this world. If you are... um, Make a habit of underlining in your Bibles, marking things in your Bible. Underline after that. It's a very important phrase. See, Romans chapter 1 tells us that the created order openly and clearly declares God. Romans chapter 1 and the Psalms tell us the heavens declare the glory of God. Romans chapter 1, however, tells us that when a man looks around him and he sees the trees and the sky and the, the animals, and when he looks at his own body and he sees the precision of his body, when he looks at everything that's created, he cannot help but recognize there is a God. Because creation is so clear that there is a Creator. Romans chapter 1 also tells us that man's conscience, by means of the moral law, reveals that there is a God. That when a man does something that offends his conscience when he does something he knows is wrong, 
The fact that he knows it's wrong without ever having to be taught it's wrong is an open and shut case that there's something higher that is imposing a morality upon us. When my daughters lie and cheat and steal, when I catch them with their hand in the cookie jar at age two, I didn't teach them to put their hand in the cookie jar and take something that wasn't theirs. Moreover, I didn't teach them to feel guilty when they did it. But they do feel guilty because they know they did something wrong. We don't have to teach our children to sin. Nor do we have to teach our children to feel guilty for sin. Why? Because it's written on their hearts. Romans chapter 1 tells us that. Romans chapter 1 tells us that we have a conscience and that that conscience tells us that we've done wrong, that we've offended not society's laws, but God's laws. But mankind rejected the revelation of God through creation. Mankind has rejected the revelation of God through the law. Mankind, what did he do with the revelation of God in creation? He turned creation into a God itself. And so for thousands of years, you look through history, mankind has worshipped the sun. Mankind has worshipped the moon. Mankind has worshipped the seasons. And today, mankind is worshipping nature as well. The green movement, that's what it is. They're worshipping nature. Mankind has taken nature and they've elevated it to the pedestal of God. Instead of seeing creation as a manifest token of God's greatness and of God's creation, they've said this created order is God itself. We've done the same thing with the law. Mankind being convicted in our hearts through our consciences when we've offended have decided that we in turn are God. See, if I elevate myself to the position of God, then when I feel bad about something I've done, I can say, but wait a minute. This is my life. This is my heart. This is me. There is no God. I'm God. Therefore, I can ignore this. And so they've elevated, we've elevated ourselves to God so that we don't have to listen to the, God, the law of God written on our hearts. And that's what atheism is. That is us saying, there is no God, I am God. I am the, the leader of my own destiny. And we see our society spiraling down into these very things that the Scriptures warn us about. But notice, I had you underline the, those two words, after that. After. This is sequence. Something happened, and then after that, something else happened. Well... After what? In the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. So, the world could have known God by wisdom. The, the world could have, in the wisdom of their own minds, looked at creation and said, there's a God. The world could have, in the wisdom of their minds, recognized they had a conscience and said, there's a God. But they've rejected that. So, it says, after they rejected God through the wisdom of the world, God did something in His wisdom. He chose the foolishness of preaching. He chose something that isn't wise to man. And He's using something that isn't wise to man as the means by which men come to believe. And that thing that isn't wise, that thing that is foolish, that thing that makes no sense to man is the cross of Christ. When Brother Grismore was up here a few minutes ago and he said, it's a bloody cross. 
There's something about that, even when he said it, that tweaked my sensibilities a little bit. I didn't like it when he said that. I didn't. That didn't make me feel good. I didn't like it being called... I'm not saying he did something wrong. What I'm saying here is the human sensibility in me says, Ah, bloody cross. I mean, you have to put it that way? Well, it's what it was. And see, there's something in the heart of man that doesn't like the cross. It's foolishness. But it's the wisdom of God. And that's what Paul is saying here. For after the wisdom, for after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them, not that exercised their intellect, them that believe. Consider with me the wisdom of God's plan. Preaching in its truest sense is not about the man, but about the message. And that message is the cross. Listening to true preaching is not about you buying into me. It's not about you buying into my message. It's not about you believing the message, uh, the, the man. It's about you believing the message. The preaching is not about the man standing up here. It's about the message that the man delivers. And that should help you as you consider the society that we live in. A society that's buying into the man more than the message. A a society that doesn't care what the message is as long as it's the man. A society that's willing to ignore the fact that the message he's giving is not from the Word of God as long as it's the man. The message is what matters. On any given week, you should be able to come into Legacy Baptist Church and hear a message. And that message should always be consistent. Whether Pastor Wickler is preaching it, whether Mike is preaching it, whether Troy is preaching it, whether Ed is preaching it, regardless of who would be preaching the message, it should always be the same message. The Word of the Cross. The Word of God. The preaching of the Cross. Why? Because what we do here and what God has ordained upon this earth is not that a man should be elevated. Is not that um, organizations or ministries should be elevated. It's that a message should be elevated. A proper message. A right message. The message of the Word of God. So it pleases God to bypass the elements of worldly wisdom that would regularly be so instrumental in convincing a man of truth. If I want to convince you of something, the best thing for me to do is to have pictures. To have physical proof. To have something whereby I can convince you that something really happened. If I really, really wanted to convince you, the best way for me to do it would be to give you some empirical data because that's how humans work. But God in His wisdom has bypassed that. Did He give the empirical stuff? He sure did. But He has bypassed that with the preaching of the cross. The world looks at our faith. The world looks at the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross and says we're foolish. Says we're anti-intellectual. Says we're weak-minded. I read it every day in the news. I love to read the news. And I particularly like to go to science websites. My wife kind of thinks I have a a complex where I like to get myself angry because I like to go to, to, to websites that, that have science articles. 
and I like to read them. And I like to read them because what they do is they elevate the wisdom of man. And without, a fa- without fail, in the comment section underneath the article, there will always be a debate about the Word of God. Someone will always start that debate and it will always rage. And without fail, what comes up is you Christian anti-intellectuals. You people just cannot... You, you, you can't think. So you just explain it all away with God. I read an article not too long ago that that was the entire purpose of the article. The article was entitled, uh, Atheists Have Higher IQ Than People of Faith. And it was talking about how atheists regularly score higher IQs than, than those people of faith. Well, you think about the factors of their testing, and you would understand why. Um, we're not going to go there. But, but the world sees the cross, the Bible, faith, as anti-intellectual. But through the eyes of faith and the illumination of the Holy Spirit, which indwells us at the moment of salvation, we see clearly the wisdom, the love, and the goodness of God found in the cross. We see that man's wisdom gets men nowhere with God. We see that what the cross does is it abolishes worldly wisdom. It brings to naught worldly wisdom. That was our first lesson. The cross abolishes worldly wisdom. Second lesson this morning, in verses 22 through 25, the cross magnifies God's wisdom. Whereas it abolishes worldly wisdom, it takes God's wisdom and it just blows it up so that everyone can see it. Look at me in verse 22. For the Jews require a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block and unto the Greeks foolishness. In verse 22, Paul highlights the various forms of worldly wisdom disannulled by the preaching of the cross. The Jews, they needed to see signs. All throughout their history, God had used signs and wonders to prove Himself to them. God had showed Himself to them with the parting of the Red Sea. He'd shown Himself to them with the, with the, uh, the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud. He used prophets to do miracles, to show Himself to them. They'd always been a people of signs and wonders. The preaching of the cross doesn't use physical signs. The Greeks needed to hear wisdom. As we talked about already, the Greeks have been a people, they were a people that were learners for learning's sake. They had the great philosophers of the age. People still read today, Aristotle, Plato, Socrates, Hippocrates. These were Greeks. Tremendous time of learning, of wisdom. They wanted something deeply rooted in philosophy and science. Something that they could uh, put their hands around. The preaching of the cross is not about man's wisdom. So in contrast, verses 22 and 23 say, unto the Jews a stumbling block, unto the Greeks foolishness, but unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. God's wisdom has designed that we preach something that sounds foolish. That God became a man. That God submitted Himself to the cruelty of the cross to pay for my sins, and that He rose again in victory over the grave. And when any man, whether it's a Jew, or whether what they call Gentiles, whether it's a Jew or a non-Jew, 
accepts this message and is indwelled with the Holy Ghost, the Spirit of God helps him to understand that the cross is indeed not foolishness. But rather, the cross is the very epitome, the very reflection of God's wisdom and God's power unto salvation. The cross did something that no man could do. The cross reversed something that had been etched in history. Adam falls to sin. The entire human race falls with him. And the cross in God's wisdom, something as foolish as the cross, completely reversed everything. All the destruction, all the devastation of sin that came into the world with Adam. What wisdom, what goodness, what love, what power. But to the world, it's foolishness. This is what gives us the confidence to say what Paul said in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. As he spoke of the unbeliever and their unwillingness to believe in God, he said this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it, the gospel, the cross, is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So we ask the question this morning, why does it all work? Why is it that the thing which is a stumbling block to the Jew and a thing which is foolishness to the Greek is actually the very power and the wisdom of God? Is how, how, how does this come about? Well, it's this way because as the Scriptures tell it, verse 25, the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Because that which would seem so foolish to men, when we look at it, we recognize that God's wisdom is so much higher than ours, that God's, even God's weakness is higher than our strength, to the extent that without the help of the Spirit of God, we cannot even fathom this wisdom. And so the cross is not just meant to reveal how inadequate we are. How inadequate you are and I am to solve our own problems in this life. How inadequate it is just for me to try to be a good person. Or just for me to go to church. Or just for me to get baptized. Or just for me to do any external thing. The cross is not just meant to reveal how inadequate all of those things are, but it is also meant to show us that God, through something as foolish as the cross, can solve our entire problem for us. Thus, not only does it lower man, but it elevates the wisdom of God. Not only does it abolish man's attempts at wisdom, man's attempts at saving himself, man's attempts at self-justification, man's attempts at self-righteousness, but it elevates God to a level where He did for us what we could not do ourselves. He did in something as foolish as the cross what the very greatest minds of all mankind could not understand or fathom. The cross abolishes worldly wisdom. The cross magnifies God's wisdom. And as we see this, abolishment of man's wisdom and magnification of God's wisdom, it all works towards one purpose. All of this stuff is heading in one direction, and that direction is our third lesson this morning. 
that the cross glorifies God alone. Why is it that God chose something so foolish? Why is it that God chose something that is so offensive to human sensibilities? Why is it that God chose something that, that, that doesn't make sense from a human perspective? Because God doesn't want you to get any glory for your own salvation. We are memorizing in um, Sunday school right now, as a part of our memory work right now, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not of works. What's the last phrase? Lest any man should boast. The reason why it's by faith, by grace through faith, and not works, the reason why your, your good works will never get you to heaven, or your church attendance will never get you to heaven, or your baptism will never get you to heaven, or the money that you give will never get you to heaven, any of those things, the reason why they won't get you to heaven is because then someday you'll get to stand in heaven and say, look what I did. Look at all the good that I've done. Look at how much good I did. Look how worthy I am to be here. That's not what God wants. On the day that we stand in glory, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you will have nothing to boast in save the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul said, right? I glory not, but in the cross of Jesus Christ. After having spoken in a more broad context in the previous verses, Paul again makes his teaching personal to the Corinthians in verse 26. We've memorized this passage. This was our memory work last month. Let's look at it together. For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are. There's little doubt that Paul was appealing to the actual knowledge of the Corinthians here in these verses. Paul says, look around you, church of Corinth. Look who's in your midst. Look at the believers that stand around you and look at who's not there. Who do you not see? Corinth, you don't see the philosophers of your city. You don't see the professors of your city. You don't see the politicians of your city. You don't see those men of great honor, those men of great worldly wisdom, those men of great wealth and stature. You don't see those, do you? Now, it's interesting to note here that we're a few men of note, of honor, of stature in the city that we're saved. We'll get back to that in just a moment. Sosthenes and Crispus, they were both leaders of the Jewish synagogue. They both got saved in Corinth. But we know from 1 Corinthians 1.1 that Sosthenes was with Paul wherever he was at the time, we believe, um, on his journeys, probably in Ephesus. And it was quite possible that Crispus had left the city as well. So um, Paul is not making the, the point here that these people can't get saved. We'll see that. But he says, look around you. Where are all those men of wisdom? What Paul is saying is that the gospel, the cross, this cross that we've sung about, this cross that is so offensive, this cross that Jesus Christ died upon, causes every type of earthly honor to be humbled, to be set aside before the glory of God. In verse 26, Paul speaks of three types of people. He speaks of the wise, 
He speaks of the honorable and he speaks of the mighty. The wise, the mighty, the noble is how it's said. In verses 27 and 28, he describes the humbling of each. The wise must accept the gospel that seems foolish. The mighty must accept the gospel that is, seems weak. And the noble must accept the gospel that is filled with dishonor. The cross is not an honorable thing. It was a death penalty. It was death. There's no honor in it. And a man that seeks honor is going to have a hard time dishonoring himself by accepting the cross. The cross has no might in it. It was, it was an element of torture and of humility. The entire point of the cross was to scorn the man, to humble the man, to bring the man to his lowest. And the man that seeks might, nobility, is going to have to humble himself before the weakness of the cross to accept it. And you know, there's no wisdom in the cross. Couldn't God have found a better way? Couldn't He have found an easier way? How foolish that He sent His Son to die. And so the wise man is going to have to get to the point where he can accept the foolishness of the cross. And so Paul says, where are the wise men? Where's the scribes? Where's the dispute of this world? There aren't many mighty called. There aren't many wise called. There aren't many noble that come to know Jesus Christ. Why? Because those who are wise, those who are mighty, those who are noble, have a farther road to travel. They have to humble themselves deeper than perhaps someone else might. Because they have to get over their wisdom, their might, their sense of nobility and pride if they're going to accept the gospel, if they're going to accept the cross. See, the cross brings no earthly honor to any man. Look at verse 29. He says, He brings to naught things that are that no flesh should glory in His presence. The reason why God did it the way He did it, the reason why He used the cross is so that no one can glory in God's presence. No one can glory but God alone. Salvation is not in the least a transaction that brings any honor to man. And because salvation lacks the elements of worldly wisdom that men of intellect and men of honor have spent so many years striving for, they're more prone to reject it. Salvation is the exact opposite of earthly honor and riches. It is personal humility before God and personal weakness before God. His honor, not your own. Salvation defers earthly honor for the sake of heavenly rewards one day. And for those who have already attained unto this earthly honor, be it might, be it stature, be it um, power, be it wisdom, to accept spiritual praise one day to reject that wisdom and that honor and those elements of this age is difficult for a man to do. To accept the spiritual at the expense of the physical is not easy. And so those who are wise those who are mighty, those who are noble, have harder decisions to make. Now note, Paul is not saying that a rich man or a wise man or a man of power cannot be saved. He's not saying that under any circumstances. He's simply saying they have more to lose on this earth. And thus they have a longer road of humility to travel before they can make it to the point where they're ready and willing to defer earthly honor for the sake of heavenly honor and for the sake of 
glory, and honor given to God and not to Himself. This is why Jesus Christ told a man that he has to come to God with the faith of a child. This is why it's so much harder for adults to get saved. When you've started in life, and once you're into your adult years, and you begin to earn a living, provide for a family, you're doing all these things, and then you have someone knock on your door one day. And they tell you, oh, by the way, you're a bad person. You're a sinner. You need salvation. You're on your way to hell. You can't do it without God. And they begin to look down their list and they've said, well, I did this without God. I made it, I was captain of my football team without God. I have a house without God and a car without God and I'm raising my family without God and I've been well educated without God and I'm healthy without God. I've got all these things without God. What do I need God for? That's what Paul's saying here. That the wisdom and the might and the nobility that is entrenched in the heart and the mind of man is what keeps him from God. And that is why the cross is so amazing. Because the only man that can properly come to God is the one that comes through the cross. And the only man that's going to come through the cross is the man that's willing to humble himself. And that is what God is looking for. Is the man who accepts salvation on God's terms, not his own. The man who accepts salvation by grace through faith, not by works. Can you see the wisdom of the cross? Can you see the power of God in the cross? The wisdom of God in the cross? So it really comes down to our worldview. It comes down to the difference in having an earthly perspective and, and, and having a heavenly perspective. To we who have accepted the foolishness of the cross, as it were, what we recognize to be the wisdom and the power of God through belief in the name of Jesus Christ, the world sees us as foolish. Look at, look at verse 30. But of Him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. The world looks at what we're doing today and they say, you're foolish. The world looks at what we've accepted and they say it's foolish. But we who have accepted Christ see salvation by grace through faith in the cross of Jesus Christ. And it is wisdom. But it's more than just wisdom. It is our righteousness. It is our very hope of righteousness. It is our sanctification. It is, <coughs> excuse me, it is the very hope that we will one day be completely Sanctified, and it is the very hope that we have in this life of drawing near to God, and it is redemption. It is the very thing that bought us back from the slave market of sin. It is the very thing that found us wallowing in our own wickedness and pulled us out of that and cleaned us up and made us a child of the King. That is the cross. Notice in verse 31, Paul uses that key phrase again, as it is written. See, the cross is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That, Paul says, according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in God. Well, the Bible says as it is written here, which means we need to go find out where it was written. In this case, it was written in Jeremiah chapter 29, excuse me, verses 23 and 24. We've memorized this passage too at the church. Thus saith the Lord, 
Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Neither let the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me, that I am the Lord, which exercise loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, saith the Lord. Perhaps you're sitting in that seat this morning or listening on the internet under the sound of my voice and as you're doing so, you've recognized that you may have been going through the motions, you've been trusting in something, but you've never accepted the cross of Jesus Christ. You recognize that you have never humbled yourself before God and accepted the foolishness of the cross. You've never accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. Well, may I just tell you this morning, this message was for you. See, you're a sinner. The Scriptures tell us that there is none righteous, no, not one. The Scriptures tell us that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And because you're a sinner, you have fallen short of God's glory. And you are therefore destined to a sinner's hell. Eternal punishment as a just recompense for your sin. But as we talked about throughout the whole sermon today, God has made a way. It's not a way of manly wisdom. It's not a way that you have to earn. It's not you working off your debt or anything of the sort. Jesus Christ paid your debt on the cross. And it is for you not to work, not to earn, but to accept the gift of Jesus Christ on the cross. Now maybe you're an adult listening under the sound of my voice and you know, you've been pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps for years. You've made it this far. You've gotten this far. You've done okay so far. Well, let me just assure you, under the authority of God's Word today, you're not going to make it to heaven that way. You can't make it that far. You may be able to get to the very end of your days healthy, I mean, except for the death part, but you may be able to get to the very end of your days healthy, wealthy, comfortable, family surrounding you, well-respected in your community. They may write books about you. They may make documentaries about you. You may have your name on plaques. But if you stand before God one day and say, God, look at all the plaques and books in my name, He's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. The wisdom of the cross is found in you humbling yourself before God, accepting that which you cannot do on your own, Accepting Jesus Christ's gift on your behalf. And if you will do that this morning, if you will accept the cross, if you will accept Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, that He died, that He rose again three days later, that He is sitting on the right hand of God in victory over death and hell and the grave, so that you could have victory too, you will be saved. You say, Pastor, I need more information. Please come see me after the service. I'd be glad to open a Bible and show you how you can know for sure you're on your way to heaven. Perhaps you're sitting in the room this morning and you are a believer. You're listening on the internet and you're, you are a believer. This message is for you as well. The reason Paul is saying these things in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 is because these men and women have broken themselves into factions. They have committed themselves to worldly wisdom. You know, as we look at the society around us, there's a great deal of worldly wisdom out there. And you have access to it 24-7. 
you can go online, you can turn the television on, and you can read the, the words of experts any day of the week. And they'll tell you all sorts of things. And you know, just because you have been saved by grace through faith and you have accepted the foolishness of the Gospel, you have accepted the foolishness of the cross, does not mean that your mind is completely right. Does not mean that in every area of your life you are thinking the way God thinks. And see, what Paul is doing as he's correcting them in these verses is he's trying to undo the worldly wisdom that has completely corrupted this church. The moral relativity that has completely corrupted the Corinthians. The worldly wisdom that has entered into them and skewed every aspect of how they believed God functioned. And for those of you who are believers this morning, I trust that you appreciate and have been able to appreciate the preaching on the cross. Recognizing the foolishness of the world and the, and the wisdom of the cross through God. But may this be a week of preparation for you as well. As we continue in the book of Corinthians, you're going to be made uncomfortable. I am going to challenge you on various aspects of your thinking and the ways in which the world around us has infiltrated your mind. Because it has. And unless we are so careful, this world around us will creep in. And what Paul is trying to show us in 1 Corinthians 1, 18-31 is the importance of not allowing worldly wisdom to override our understanding of the Word of God. Not allow worldly wisdom to win in the debate with the Word of God. And I believe many of us in various aspects of our lives have allowed the world to do exactly that. And I'm lauding myself into this category. And so let's prepare our hearts. Let's continue to search our hearts. Let's look for those areas of our lives where the worldly wisdom, the wisdom that we had to reject even to accept the gospel, has found its way into our lifestyles, has found its way into our thinking, has found its way into our practice. Let's search our hearts and prepare our hearts so that this series can be everything it needs to be as we continue looking in the book of 1 Corinthians.